Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be able to come and share uh, the Word of the Lord with the people of God uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, We're going to begin uh, to read uh, from the book of James, and I think if I remember rightly, the, the page number is 1213. Correct me if I'm wrong. Because the Bible that I'm reading from has a slightly different page set up and layout. Okay, and we're reading from um, verse 13 uh, of James chapter 1 uh, through to the end of verse 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then their desire has conceived, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that your word has been described by the psalmist as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ask you, God, that by your Holy Spirit you will lead us today as we seek to learn from your word and to hear it not only in our ears but in our hearts and that your name might be lifted up and glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, um, someone asked what it was like to preach with a view. Well, let me put your mind at rest. I'm not preaching with a view. But if I were, the view is actually quite nice from up here. I recommend it to you to come and have a look sometime. But we're going to begin by uh, looking into this book of James. Now, uh, I wasn't uh, here last week, and so I didn't hear uh, Harry's uh, initial uh, thoughts and comments on the first part of the chapter. And uh, so, forgive me for just introducing it a little bit uh, as we go forward. Uh, James is the brother of Jesus, and it's likely to be he who wrote this letter, probably to Jewish Christians. The book, uh, because of its apparent focus Uh, in parts on good works and not on specifically salvation by grace alone, gets uh, some bad press from time to time from some commentators. Even the mighty Martin Luther uh, could not initially reconcile uh, Paul's and uh, James's teaching of faith alone on one hand and faith without works is dead on the other. Uh, However, Luther... um, and his later writings uh, didn't include the, the comments on the Epistle of Straw, as we've heard it called uh, from time to time. 
So if we, if we want to um, introduce James uh, in only a few words, um, basically it's real Christian faith shown by one's good, good works. If, if, if you wanted it in a sentence, that would be it. However, that sits a bit uncomfortably with us at times. And uh, clearly the Apostle Paul teaches that salvation is by faith alone and not by good works. And so James has to clarify what he's saying later on in the book. Um, and he clarifies it by saying that good works will follow uh, true faith. And so someone else will be teaching on that later on, no doubt. So I don't want to go into that in too much detail at this moment in time. But however, that, that particular thought was always a problem to me as a young Christian because in the church that I grew up, there was a, a, a kind of idea promoted that um, young people, once you um, take Jesus as your saviour, then that's all you need to do and you can sit back then and not do anything. Um, and of course, that wasn't really what was being promoted and taught, but that's how it was received often. And so um, sitting back and doing nothing once we, we are converted is not really what God intends for us. And so um, if we're going to have faith, James says, that we need to have true faith, and that involves serving the Lord in good works. And uh, so not to... to put too fine a point on it, both are true, uh, that, faith is by, uh, but that, that salvation is by faith alone, but also God calls us to do good works. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so pre-regeneration works can be seen as an attempt to buy salvation um, and is described as, uh, in other parts of the scripture, as filthy rags. Post-regeneration, in other words, once we're converted, salvation is already ours through Christ, and so our good works can't buy anything because everything has already been purchased and dealt with. The work has been completed, and so our good works are as in a service to the Lord and his kingdom. One of my heroes of the faith, a man by the name of C.T. Studd, the founder of WEC, um, said these words, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And uh, uh, if you ever get the opportunity to read the story of C.T. Studd and his work in the Congo, uh, then please do read it. It's a wonderful story. With all that in mind, anyway, let's look into this, uh, this portion that we've been given today. We meet some quite challenging uh, issues as we read into it, and uh, it, asking the question, where does temptation come from, and, and is it from the devil? Um, where, where, where should we go with that? How much responsibility do we have? Uh, to bear the responsibility for our own sins. And of course, as I spoke to the kids, I kind of gave the game away at that point, that in actual fact we have responsibility for our own sins uh, to acknowledge them before God. So beginning at verse 13, it says there, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And the word tempted in this particular context refers to uh, temptations that test our moral strength uh, to resist sin. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1 and following, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, the temptation of Christ. And his temptation was divinely instituted. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so, as our temptation, like his, is also divinely instituted. In other words, God is involved with the temptations that come our way. Now, we have to say that the temptation and the act of being involved in the temptation is a different thing than the temptation coming to us in the first instance. And so let's uh, make sure that we understand the difference between both of these. And so our temptation is in the same way as Jesus divinely instituted. And God is behind uh, us being tempted in the sense that uh, he brings it our direction to test us for his purposes. Hebrews 4, 15, it says there, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So God in his very nature is holy. There is nothing in him for sin to appeal to. For man, however, you and I, that is a very different matter. I was recently in Burundi as, uh, doing some training for church pastors there and uh, we had, as always, a question time at the end. And one of the pastors, uh, we had been talking about uh, various uh, things, but one of the things was uh, David uh, and his sin with Bathsheba. And his question was, well, surely um, God did that because if God is in charge of everything, then God must have done it and uh, he involved him in it. And of course, we then had to come back to this very scripture uh, to clarify that point and make it clear that God does not bring the temptation, but temptation is approaching something that is inside of us already. Matthew Henry puts it like this, every soul that truly loves God shall have its trials in this world fully recompensed in that world above, where love is made perfect. The commands of God and the dealings of his providence try men's hearts and show the dispositions which prevail in them. But nothing sinful in the heart or conduct can be ascribed to God. He is not the author of the dross, though his fiery trial exposes it. Those who lay the blame of sin either upon their constitution or upon their condition in this world or pretend that they cannot keep from sinning wrong God as if he were the author of sin. So temptation, according to James, should be regarded as something of an opportunity, something that causes joy not something that causes grief and sadness to us. Something that causes an opportunity and joy in our souls. It says here that the endurance of temptation 
brings from God even the crown of life. Now, if you read Revelation 2, the only other part, I think, in Scripture where the crown of life is mentioned, Revelation 2.10, it says there, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you, will be, and you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so there is an opportunity that comes to us as we go through our temptations, the ones that come our way, uh, that we will end up as we are faithful by receiving the crown of life. And 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 is described slightly differently. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What a wonderful way of describing the presence of God, who have loved his appearing. And in 1 Peter 5, it's described differently again. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so, There is an opportunity here for us. As temptation comes our way and comes upon us, then we have an opportunity to see Christ glorified and a crown of glory becoming ours one day. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. A very effective image of that is if you read the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 7, from verse 6 and onwards. It talks there about uh, lust being personified, and uh, like a harlot trapping a young man. And that temptation uh, is coming upon him. And the words dragged away here, not by the devil, not by any other actor, but by our own evil desires. Now, we don't particularly like to hear that we have evil desires. These are strong words that the Bible uses, but they are God's Word, and we must respond to them. Our own evil desires. It's a a kind of hunting term that is used when uh, this description is put before us, Evil desire and enticed is a kind of metaphor, a kind of hunting metaphor. And it's uh, where, where, where a, a, a trap is set for a prey of some sort. Um, normally in, in ancient times to try, and, and still today even in, in rural parts of, of the developing world, uh, a pit is dug uh, to try and trap an animal. And on top of the pit, of course, they put branches and and so on, to make it look like there is no trap there. And then in the middle of the branches, they stick a great lump of meat or something to entice the wild animal. And, uh, of course, this unsuspecting animal comes along, sees the meat, jumps on it, and falls into the bottom of the hole uh, where it is captured or killed or whatever, falls into the hands of whoever is pursuing it. And so 
This is what's happening here uh, when we talk about an evil desire and being enticed. The enemy is involved. The devil is involved here perhaps somewhere. He throws something before us that we are likely to respond to. There is no point in him putting stuff before us that we won't want or won't like or won't respond to in any way. And so it's likely to be something that will challenge us in one way or the other. And so we are warned in the scripture that we are targeted by the evil one. It talks about a prowling lion going around seeking whom he can devour. And so there is a warning there for us that we are being uh, stalked, if you like. Cain, uh, in the book of Genesis, as he uh, murdered his brother Abel, was warned by God in advance that he was on the devil's radar, that there was a problem facing him, and he, God could see in his heart what was going on. And uh, we're reminded in the book of 1 Samuel, around chapter 16, that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. And then in verse, uh, chapter 4 of Genesis, it says this, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Taking that analogy of the the lion that we spoke about a moment ago, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. And so it's important that we understand that we can't shed the responsibility of temptation and sin, we must take control over it. We must rule over it. Temptation is an internal thing. It's not external. Two people could be confronted with the same external circumstances, but one sins and the other does not. For example, a poor person in great need, sees an unguarded wallet somewhere. Whether he steals it or not is based entirely on whether he is carried away by his own lusts or not. A lonely married man, businessman somewhere, far from home, meets an attractive woman who wants to seduce him. Whether he sleeps with her or remains faithful to his wife depends entirely on whether or not he's carried away by his own lusts. And so we must be aware that the responsibility for sin doesn't lie elsewhere, it lies with us. James is telling us that the popular phrase, the devil made me do it, isn't true. The devil can't make us do anything that we choose not to do. And so um, we must see that Uh, this whole business of temptation is a process that is going on in our lives. And if you want to see something with regard to process, look at the book of Psalm, the Psalms, the Psalm 1. It talks there about walking and standing and sitting, the process of being involved uh, in evil uh, there. Moving on to verse 15 says there, then after desire was conceived, it gave birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
And so there are three stages here, again, a process going on. First of all, it starts with desire, a desire for that which is sinful. Of course, we are often convinced that that this is okay, that the desire that we are uh, looking into. Um, And again, we go back to the book of Genesis and Eve. The devil was involved in sweet-talking Eve uh, there. And uh, so our own minds and whims begin to tell us that somehow or another this is okay. We get convinced in our own head and perhaps even in our own heart that this is okay. So the desire comes and it is followed by an act, the sinful act, the thought, the word, uh, whatever it might be. And then from that moment, death takes over. Not physical death necessarily, but death of the soul. You know that scripture that talks about what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. And so there is a major challenge here to us as we read these words that we have something presented to us, put before us, which is very acceptable, looks very, very good, and something that we can be enticed away after. But by gaining it, we can lose our soul. And in Eve's case, as she was, as I say, sweet-talked by the devil into eating the, the, the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, she didn't physically die but she lost her soul. Her soul was fallen from the presence of God and with her husband as well. She was promised the whole world. She was promised great things. You will be as God. If you, if you do this, if you eat this, you'll get everything that you could possibly want. But of course, as we know, none of that actually was true. And that is the problem of sin uh, to us. That it It promises us so much and yet delivers so little. And the same story comes in this uh, 2nd Samuel where David uh, is enticed uh, by Bathsheba. And uh, there were some great problems going on there, but David chose to do something. And in the beginning of that choice, it it seemed to him like he was going to receive something wonderful. But in actual fact, it took him down into murder and uh, all sorts of destruction uh, for him and his people. And so maybe he thought somehow or another, because I'm the king, I'm indestructible. And maybe we sometimes think, because we are Christian believers, that nothing can really get us and take us down like that. But it can. And there are many, many stories, even uh, not so far from here, that we can see um, that deception has come and people have been broken by it. So moving on to verse 16, it tells us there, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And this is the same word that is used in the book of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the only one, sorry, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so, um, 
Again, God is speaking to us with regard to the whole deception issue that sometimes we can look at something and think it's wonderful and we are deceived in that moment and step forward into something from which we can't return. And also in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says there, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, or thieves, etc. And it gives a, a long list here, uh, will uh, benefit from the kingdom of God, or will inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, challenges us there also uh, to uh, focus on God's um, truth uh, and God's um, call to walk with him. Some deceit is very obvious. Uh, Sam Albury uh, says this, that if you take a cursory glance into uh, somebody's spam folder, email spam folder, you'll find uh, all sorts of messages claiming to be from your bank or claiming to be from, from a very uh, generous royal uh, person somewhere in the world uh, wishing to be very generous towards you with the money that they've inherited. Um, clearly and obviously, uh, they are dodgy. I remember the very first time reading one of these and thinking, this is far too good to be true. And clearly it was very far too good to be true. And uh, so we, we, we can see these as being obvious at times, that it's not really too difficult to spot. But deception is not always like that. Some people have been swindled out of their life savings um, and their pensions by scammers because they didn't understand that it was a deception. And so when we go back to the book of Genesis, of course it was all about deception and what was to be gained by that. And of course, as we said earlier, that it is uh, something that we see as being so profitable and so wonderful, but it ends up bringing us nothing, in fact, destroying us completely. Moving on to verse 17. It says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Of course, God is the creator of the heavenly bodies, which give light uh, to the earth. Um, but unlike them, he doesn't change. Sometimes you'll hear information of stars and parts of galaxies that have disappeared. Uh, they've burned out. They, have, uh, they are now no longer able to be seen because they've gone. But of course, our God, our Creator, is the one who put them in place, but He, not, unlike them, does not change. He um, is not like a shifting shadow, and it's gone, referring obviously to um, a, a timepiece where um, the shadow of the sun changed the time of the day, and, uh, and here it's saying, God is not like that. He doesn't change like shadows. He doesn't change like those in the time-space world. But he is unchanging. And uh, that's important for us to be aware uh, as we approach God. Christ, of course, is our greatest gift. It talks about every good and perfect gift coming down from the Father. Well, of course, Christ is the greatest gift. 
And in Romans chapter 6, it talks about the wages of sin being death, but the gift of God being eternal life through Jesus Christ. And uh, so we must be aware that everything that comes from God is good for us. And sometimes we look on things and we wonder, why is God giving me this? Why is this coming my direction? The very air that we breathe is a gift from God, and yet sometimes we don't see it that way. We don't recognize it as such. We see issues and problems appearing in our lives, and we ask the question, well, why me? Why is this happening to me? I was reading just recently a a story of a lady by the name of Annie J. Flint, and if you've ever heard her story, it's an absolutely remarkable story. Here was a lady who had suffered great loss during her life, experienced tremendous suffering uh, through illness and, and uh, pain. Her disabilities lasted many, many years in her life. And she wrote this poem, which has become a hymn uh, as well, and it says this, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. He added, sorry, to added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Good and perfect gifts. And sometimes we look at these and we think, no way could that be good. But in actual fact, God gives us grace. He gives us mercy. He gives us peace. He gives us endurance. He gives us provision. He gives us his strength. He gives us love, he gives us power, and he gives us Christ out of his infinite riches. Giving and giving and giving. And so it's important for us to realize that no matter what kind of crisis, what kind of difficulty, what kind of pain, what kind of suffering might come our way, that God is bringing that to test us and to Bring us to a place where we can focus on him and understand his truth even more. Verse 18, as we come to the end. He chose to give us birth through the word of his truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. 
So God has given us something. He's given us new birth. That's the origin of this that he has given to us. It's given to us as a gracious gift from God. We quoted earlier Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the, probably the most well-known verse in all of Christendom, John 3.16, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. And so it's a gift from God that we've been given. We can't earn our salvation. As Romans 6 says that we earn wages. We deserve wages. The wages of sin, we deserve that. We don't deserve a gift. You know, when we see a child being born, a baby being born into a families, we bring gifts to the baby. <laughs> the baby hasn't done anything, hasn't achieved anything, can't and can't work, it can't wash the dishes. I mean, this little thing it causes all, all sorts of trouble. It screams at night sometimes. It makes some messes sometimes as well. And so why on earth do we give a gift to this horrible little creature? <laughs> why on earth do we do that? We give it because we love the baby. And this is what it's saying here. That because of God's great love for us horrible creatures, he's given us a gift, which is Christ. He chose to give us the gift of Christ. He chose that because he loves us. The new birth has been brought to us by listening or coming under the word of truth. In other words, coming and hearing, reading, uh, receiving the word of God. Sin and death comes by listening to evil desires. But the word of God is so powerful that it uh, breaks through all of that. And it says in Hebrews 4, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. And so the word of God grips us and changes us into new people through Christ. And the result is that we become kind of first fruits, it says in the second half of verse 18. We come, become kind of first fruits of all that God has created. Our old life brought about death, but the new life brings about fruit. It's fruitfulness that God has called us to. The first fruits are a guarantee of something that will come in the future. First fruits, if you go up the Cast of Gowrie here, a very good example of that. If you go up the Cast of Gowrie uh, at the end of May, you'll get the first fruits of the strawberry harvest. But then the fact that you've got these kind of half red, half green strawberries... Uh, reminds you that some fantastic red strawberries, juicy strawberries, are coming later on because it's the first fruits of a harvest that is yet to be brought in. And we have become, uh, James is saying here, we have become 
the first fruits, talking to those new believers, these new Jewish believers at the beginning. We have become a kind of first fruits, and there will be many, many more that will come afterwards. And the same applies to us today. Those of us who, who have been converted, those of us who know Christ, are first fruits because there are many, many, many more out there that still need to be harvested in. And of course, Jesus talks about the harvest being white. The fields are white unto harvest, and yet their laborers are few. And again, God is calling us to take that into consideration, to keep that in mind, and to be obedient to that call to bring in the harvest, because we are his first fruits. And so those to whom James was, was writing were very much aware of the fact that here they were, right at the very start of the church. And we today can be assured that we can be first fruits of a harvest that is yet to come. So God's eternal plan is to reconcile mankind to himself. That has been his plan from the beginning, from the day that Genesis took place, the day that Adam and Eve uh, sinned. That plan has been to reconcile mankind to himself. And it's a wonderful plan. And it involves an incredible uh, situation where Christ became that second Adam, where Christ stepped in where Adam failed and he succeeded, where Christ stepped in and became a sacrifice for us in order that we didn't have to go through what was being read earlier on uh, in the Psalms, that we didn't have to suffer the consequences of God's judgment. Tim Keller talks about a situation where uh, someone um, in the Midwest in the States in the early days of uh, the settlers there, um, where heavy, heavy hailstorms would come and and destroy everything, crops and, and, and everything else, homes even, would be destroyed by these huge hailstones that would hit. And uh, he tells the story of a man going out to find what was l- remaining after this huge hailstorm that had taken place. And he finds a hen lying under a pile of, of hailstones and uh, pushes the hen over with his feet and out from the hen runs uh, a scatter of little chicks who had hidden underneath that. And he describes it as a situation where Jesus has taken the judgment of God, these huge balls of fire, if you like, that the judgment of God upon humankind were received by Jesus. And remember he said, Jerusalem, if you would just come, I would gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and protect you from all of that. And that's what Jesus has done. He's protected us from the fire and judgment of God so that we can be free. And his eternal plan has always been that we might be reconciled again. And some of us wonder, why is it that we go through what we go through because he is reconciling, he's drawing us back to himself. He wants us to come into his presence and and to serve him in his kingdom. So, time is over, but uh, 
Let us not say that God is tempting us, but take the responsibility for our sins. Get our thinking straight and don't accept the lie of the devil. Let's not blame God, uh, but admit to our own sin. Let's understand that sin is a process and it's something that begins with something quite small at times and develops into death. Let us remember that the devil is a great deceiver and we need to see God's gifts even in the tough times as being from his hand and not allow the deceiver to convince us that if we do begin to taste of the sin that is before us, that it's all going to be okay and we'll be fine. No, we need to come under the blood of Jesus to be cleansed. And we also need to submit and come under the word of the living God through the scriptures. Teaching of God's word is so important to us in that matter. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your grace and your favour upon our lives. We thank you for what we've seen and heard today. And we ask, Lord, that you would use that to challenge our lives, to draw us closer to you. That your word might be effective and powerful in each of our lives. And that your name might be lifted up and glorified through us, even in the most challenging and difficult of times. We thank you for what Jesus has done. We thank you that we have been gathered under his wings. That we have been protected from the wrath of God by what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And we ask, Lord, that we will never forget that you have done all that for us. Help us to come and admit to you where we are wrong and receive your forgiveness. We ask that you'll be with us now and let your blessing come upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.